name's Anthony. I'm pastor here at Fellowship Church. If you're new here, we want to welcome you. I uh, want to welcome those joining online as well, uh, wherever you're joining us from. Uh, it's an honor to have you join us today. And um, I wanted to give you a heads up that when we, um, at the end of our service today, um, we're going to be doing uh, baptisms. Um, there's things that we kind of do that are, are sacraments within the church. We, we do baptisms. Uh, we partake in communion. And just so you know, too, most weeks communion is always available on, on both sides of our stage. Um, during our times of worship and singing, you can um, come and partake whenever you'd like. Um, but we do baptisms, uh, we do communion, baby dedications, uh, weddings are a sacrament, uh, as are really kind of funerals as well. And this year, there's been a, a ton of weddings. There wasn't many weddings last year. Um, there's, there's a lot of babies on the way. Uh, as well, and so we do baby dedications, but uh, we also do baptisms. And so today we're going to be doing baptisms. And just to give you a quick preface, um, baptism is not a religious experience. It is not something that makes you a Christian. It's not something that makes you a member of a church or washes away your sins. Um, baptism is an outward expression of what God has done within your heart. And so just as Jesus died and was buried in the tomb for three days, um, we baptize people. Um, placing them under the water uh, for like not three days, but like one-third of a second um, to represent that they are now dead to their sin in Christ. And as Christ was nailed to the cross, so are their sins. As Christ was buried, so too is their sinful nature buried in Christ, and it's been put to death. And as they come back up out of the water, um, that represents the resurrection of Jesus to new life. And, and because it is water, yes, it also represents your sins being washed away. And that doesn't happen at baptism. It happens the moment you trust in Jesus and cry out to him for your salvation. And so um, just like I wear a wedding ring, uh, it doesn't make me a married person, uh, but I wear a wedding ring as a sign of being married. Um, so too is baptism a sign of being a Christian. And so I know we have two baptisms planned for this morning, and we do those while we sing and while we worship, because this is a great experience of worship, and so we'll be doing that at the conclusion of our service today. And the reason I explained all that is because I want you to know what you're going to witness today, uh, but I also want to invite you to take that step in your faith in Christ by being baptized in water. And if you haven't yet, um, the Bible actually commands it. Um, again, it's not something we must do to be saved, but it's something that once God saves us, we do. So if you'd like to be baptized, um, one, you could do so today. Um, you can let somebody know in the back. We'd love to um, celebrate that with you. You can come back tonight at 5 or any week you'd like to get baptized. Um, we don't reserve baptisms for special times of the year. I think it's something we should celebrate all the time. And so that's what we're going to be doing. Um, we are in this series now called Eli. And what we're doing essentially is looking at the life of uh, the prophets in First and Second Kings um, Elijah and Elisha. And I'll give you a real brief recap of, of this series, um, but you'll be able to engage even if you haven't heard the last four messages and jump right in. Uh, when people think of Elijah, they think of the story that we are going to be telling today. Um, this, this story of the showdown between Elijah uh, and the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. And so um, essentially where we're at in this story in 1 Kings... Um, Elijah, a prophet, confronts an evil king, the king of Israel named Ahab. And Elijah declares a drought over the land. Uh, he does this um, as a judgment upon the institutionalized worship of the false god Baal. And so 
God tells Elijah to confront the king, declare a drought. There is a drought that lasts for essentially three years. God protects Elijah by sending him to a brook in the wilderness where he is protected and provided for, then sends him to the home of a widow along the Mediterranean where he is protected and provided for for several years. And after three years of being on the run, this is what we looked at last week, um, God sends Elijah to go confront Ahab yet again. And God uses um, another servant of the Lord named Obadiah to make sure that takes place. And so today we pick up this saga uh, with an action-packed story of fire and blood, prophets and gods and kings. This is a perfect message for Father's Day. Um, blood and guts is always appropriate for Father's Day. And so there will be blood and guts today. Um, and this is what dads crave when they uh, engage with Scripture. And there's a lot of blood and guts in Scripture. So we're going to pick this up in 1 Kings 18, verse 17 through 18. Um, we're going to just kind of look at the story, breeze through it, and then I'll, I'll tell you what we want to kind of land on today and focus on is we're not here to tell a story. We're here to hear from God, from his word, and see how we can apply it to our lives. So 1 Kings 18, 17 through 18, if you could do me a favor, take out your phone. If you could silence that, uh, put on airplane mode if you need to, and if you could limit your moving around um, for the next 30, 40 minutes, we want to create some sacred space here. Um, and so if you could keep um, talking to a minimum and getting up and down to a minimum, I really think God would like to do something in your heart, and we need to work together to eliminate uh, any distraction. And a uh, reason I mention that, too, is because we have all the verses um, that we're going to be going through in our app. Um, but just let me tell the story. You can go to the app later, read through the scriptures. I, I'd love for all of us to be on the same page. So 1 Kings 18, 17 says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to Elijah, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered Ahab, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed uh, the god Baal. And so Ahab says, this is your fault, Elijah. And Elijah says, no, it's your fault, Ahab. This is on you. This is judgment from God. I'm just simply a conduit from God. I am the messenger. I'm not the one who has the message. And so in verse 19, it says, Now therefore, this is Elijah speaking to Ahab. He says, Now therefore, send and gather all of Israel to meet at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel is Ahab's wife, Queen Jezebel. Not a, not a good lady. Not a good name to name your daughter. Uh, Queen Jezebel. And Elijah says, I want all the prophets of Baal uh, to come with all of Israel. Now, Israel is millions of people. Of course, not everyone's going to come, but probably all their leaders, delegates from all over the land are going to come. They're going to witness this event. But what we learn here is, man, there's a lot of prophets of Baal. Um, Elijah's one prophet, and, and there are 400 prophets of Asherah and 450 prophets of Baal. And this also shows how enmeshed these prophets are in the house of Ahab, that they literally live in his palace, and Jezebel somehow commands these prophets to do her bidding. And so they gather at Mount Carmel, and it says in verse 20, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the people together at Mount Carmel. 
Now, as I, I read this, I've always wondered, like, why does Ahab agree to this, first of all? Ahab is this evil guy. Why does he agree um, to meet Elijah and to meet Jezebel and all these, these prophets of Baal and call all of Israel? Why does he agree to do this? And, and I honestly think he wants to really um, show Elijah up. I think he's going to humiliate Elijah. I think that's what he thinks of himself. Like, I'll show Elijah that this is all his problem and not our problem. But it's also possible he's really desperate for rain, and so he just wants to see if this whole event will actually bring about rain and put it into the drought. And so in verse 21, Elijah comes to all of the people on Mount Carmel. And so again, I, I picture Elijah being toward the top of this mountain. And uh, my, my friend Brian and I, we've been up to the top of Mount Carmel. My wife has been in Israel. And the only way I could describe this mountain is it's, it's very similar to, um, you ever been to Mary's Peak um, toward Corvallis before? It's very similar to that, but a lot smaller. Uh, another mountain that's just vaguely similar is Cascade Head. Have you seen Cascade Head or been to the top of Cascade Head in, in Lincoln City? Um, it's very similar to these mountains. If you're joining us from Oklahoma this morning, you don't have mountains. You have no clue what I'm talking about. Um, I did see a mound in the ground there at one time. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of you joining from the Midwest, you've got no clue what I'm talking about. But there's these things called mountains. It's where the ground raises up above flat ground. Uh, and so um, they're on top of this mountain. Now, this mountain, it's, it's only 1,700 feet tall, but it's five miles from the Mediterranean. And on a clear day, you can see over the valley, and you can see into the Mediterranean Sea. And this is where they are. This is the speech that Elijah's giving as people. Again, I, I can imagine, and please imagine with me, I can imagine all these people kind of downward on the mountain as he's speaking to them as they're gathered around him. And he says, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If, if the Lord, and in the Old Testament, when it says the Lord, it, it's God's name, Yahweh. So he says, if Yahweh is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And it says, the people did not answer Elijah a word. They, like, were not saying a word. So essentially, if you've read through the Old Testament, this is very reminiscent of Joshua 24, where Joshua gathers Israel, and he says, choose today whom you will serve. If you want to serve God, serve him. And this is what Elijah is doing. He's like, guys, this is really the pivoting moment where you have to decide if you are going to serve the God of Israel, the God of all creation, or if you are going to serve Baal, either way, it's all or nothing. Today is the day you will decide. And so in verse 22, it says, Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, this is a continuing problem that Elijah has. Elijah is this powerful prophet who works in the presence and the power of God, but he has a very arrogant view of himself. Um, he is very much someone who deals much with self-doubt, even though he's arrogant. Arrogance is kind of a front um, to having this doubt. He is someone uh, who has really a low view of other people serving God at the same time. And so Elijah is saying, I'm the only faithful person in Israel. Now, we know that's not true because last week, Obadiah tells Elijah, I spared 100 prophets and hid them in caves because Jezebel started killing all the prophets. And so he at least knows there's 100. Um, next week, we're going to learn that there's a whole lot more. And so Elijah's kind of feeling sorry for himself. 
You ever like dropped, dropped this little phrase in a conversation you're having with people? So Elijah's here, he's trying to, you know, build people up, serve God or serve Baal. And he's like, by the way, I'm so alone and lonely. It's just me. Feel sorry for me. Please give me attention. You ever done that before in a conversation with someone? Or someone's talking to you, they're just talking about the day, and they like, they drop this big wah-wah into the middle, like, oh, I feel pretty bad for you, you know? And so Elijah's trying to get some sympathy. It doesn't work out. Verse 23, he says, this is what I, I want everybody to do. Because I called you all here for this purpose. We're going to have a showdown. He says, let two bulls be given to us, and us here took me a while to understand what Elijah's talking about, because he just said, I'm alone. Um, us means to me, I'll take a bull, and then the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, they will take a bull. So, so give each of us a bull, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut that bull in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to the wood, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, Baal, and I will call upon the name of my God, Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, and this is like, like the weirdest English translation, but they just, they just answer, it is well spoken. I, this is probably not how they answer. They're probably just like, sure, that's good. It's well spoken. Let's, let's do it. So not only is this perfect for Father's Day because you're about to see blood and guts and fire and gods and kings, there's also barbecue here. Um, they're going to cook up some, some bull. Um, and so time, time for barbecue. Yesterday, my wife and I were driving through wine country in McMinnville, and it's 2021 is such a weird year. There was like acres and acres of solar panels fans standing in like Texas Longhorn cows just wandering around solar panels. I'm like, whoa, this is, we live in a strange time. So... Um, there's this showdown between gods. And this has been a showdown between gods since the start. And essentially what Elijah is saying is, you saw that God turned off the rain. You're about to see that only God can consume the sacrifice on an altar without you catching it on fire. So God is going to prove himself to be who he is, God, and your false God, Baal. And just as a side note, from, from a biblical worldview, I believe that many of these false gods in the Old Testament were real spiritual beings, evil, rebellious spiritual beings um, who went by many names here, Baal. Um, if you read through the account of Exodus, Pharaoh's magicians actually perform many of the miracles that God uses Moses to perform. So just, again, as a side note, I think that Baal could have done this um, using evil, supernatural power, but God was not going to allow him to because God was going to show that he is God, he is sovereign, he allows and he permits and he stops things from happening. And so this is to show God is God. What's going to happen is there's going to be proof that it's God who's in charge of life, crops, fertility, and rain, because Baal was the God of fertility. And Elijah's like, no, he's, he's really not. He, he's a false God. He's not God. And if God can turn the rain off, God can turn the rain back on again. And this is why he's been sent to Ahab to tell him it's going to rain again. Now, that hasn't been stated yet, but it will be. And so... You have to wonder, 
why have this big shock and awe escapade? What's the point? Like, couldn't have Elijah just gone up on the mountain and just said, okay, God, let it rain again and have it start raining? Yes, he could have. And what's fascinating, if you study these scriptures, we never actually know if God told Elijah to do all this stuff with the fire. He never says once, God told me to do this. I think God did. But for some reason, God's going to use this shock and awe moment to shock all of Israel to know that God is the one true God and Baal is not. It's going to be very clear. And so Elijah says, okay, 850 prophets of evil, you go first. You pick the bull, you build an altar, you gather the wood, and ask Baal to catch the bull on fire. And so it says they spent all morning going into this religious spiritual frenzy, calling on probably in gibberish Baal uh, to consume their offering with fire, and it just does not happen. And Elijah is watching this all take place, and Elijah starts making fun of Baal. Now, for whatever reason, Elijah has incredible confidence sometimes, but other times he loses all confidence. He's like, he literally says, maybe Baal's on the toilet. That's what he says. It's like the Bible doesn't say that. Oh, it, the Bible says a lot of really graphic things, actually. He says, like, maybe Baal's on the toilet. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he can't come and see what's going on. So he's kind of making fun of them. And so it goes into the afternoon, and the prophets of Baal, they get pretty upset. They're feeling the pressure. And so they do what everybody does when they want something to happen. They pull out swords and just start cutting themselves up until they start bleeding everywhere. Because that's going to work, right? Like, if you want something, that's the way to get it. And so they're cutting themselves up. They're bleeding all over the place. Nothing's happening. And finally, they just give up in the late afternoon. Clearly, Baal is not going to ignite this bull on the altar that we've constructed. And so they go first. Now it's Elijah's turn. We go down to 1 Kings 18, verse 36. It says, At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, and this is a prayer he's offering to God. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Now, this is a, a little comical because all he had to do was pray that God would make it rain. But he's a little bit nervous. If you catch on to that, he's like, can you let them know that I'm doing the right thing? He's like, I'm putting my neck out for you, God. And, and so please send the rain, but I want them to know that you sent me, and this is not about me because I don't want to get my head chopped off, essentially, is, is what he's saying. And he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Now his prayer gets more sincere more serious. Please answer, God. I want you to answer so that you will get the glory. I want you to answer so that you will get the credit. I want my people to trust in you again. I want them to repent of their sins and turn towards you. So it says, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust even licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, the reason this is significant is because Elijah builds this, this altar. 
And he digs a trench around the altar and has the prophets of Baal pour dozens and dozens of gallons of water to just drench the bull, drench the wood, so much water that it fills up this trench. And he asks, and God sends the fire, and it literally burns the stones and the dust. And I love this this way that it's described here. It's licked up the water. The only thing that that points to at all in Scripture is actually on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. As God doesn't send literal fire, but God sends the fire and power of the Holy Spirit. And the only way that the 120 followers of Jesus in the upper room can describe what's happening is they say there's like flickering tongues of fire above people's heads as God is using them and speaking through them. And here, God's fire shows up again in this flickering tongue, and it laps up the water at the bottom of the altar. And here's how the people respond when they see this. Dang. Wow. Wow. We, we should have rethought this. Wow. It says, when the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. That's all they've got to say. God is God. We, we've really messed up. They fall on their face before God. And so exactly the purpose of the prayer happens here. Elijah wants to see these people repent and turn back to God. And that's exactly what they do. We don't know how long it'll last, but they have repented. They have put their trust in God. So what we learn here is not only is God judging the entire nation with the drought, not only is God judging Ahab and Jezebel, He's also judging this false evil spirit, God, Baal. And he's also judging Baal's prophets because in verse 40 it says, And Elijah says to all the people, all of Israel that had came out, all of them that said, Oh, wow, God is God. He said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down from the mountaintop into the valley to the brook called Kishon, and he slaughtered all 850 prophets there. Ew. This is intense stuff. You might say, like, well, how how could this be a righteous thing? These prophets were, were wretched evil. All sorts of wretched evil, abominable things that they're doing there in the land on behalf of Jezebel and King Ahab. The most evil of the evil. And justice and judgment comes upon these prophets of Baal and the god Asherah as Israel then sees that they have had the wool pulled over their eyes. They're open now to the truth and they go and they slaughter the ones who have essentially sold the nation out to a false god. So the question comes up, actually, if you read through this, is like, where the heck is Ahab this whole time? And we're going to learn that not only was Ahab on top of the mountain this whole time watching, but he actually marches down Carmel. This is not, this is probably an, like an hour-long trek down the mountain to the brook. He marches down, and he watches all of these prophets get slaughtered in front of him. But there's someone that's not with Ahab. Jezebel, she's not there. We're going to learn she's in a town called Jezreel, about 20 miles away. So 
You know, imagine, if you will, that you and your spouse, you've got this plan, you've got this agenda, you've got all this stuff going on, and just one spouse goes to this real important meeting, and you see that everything goes downhill at that meeting, and you're like, oh, crap, I've got to go tell my husband or my wife about this. And so Jezebel's far away. He's got to go back and tell her what's just happened, and he's just feeling utterly humiliated. So in verse 41, Elijah says to Ahab, down at the brook at the bottom of the mountain, Elijah says to Ahab, go back up to the mountaintop, go back up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. Okay, this is why Elijah is here. God said, when you see Ahab, tell him it's going to rain. It took a long time for Elijah to tell Ahab that. A lot has happened in the time that they've been interacting with one another. But he chooses this time to say, okay, you saw this happen. You're going to get what you actually want. It's going to rain again. God's going to turn on the faucet. So go up to the top of the mountain and eat, Ahab. This seems strange. Like, Why is Elijah telling Ahab to eat? I was reading a ton of commentary, some centuries old. A lot of people think that Elijah is so disgusted at Ahab that Ahab just watched 850 people that have been serving him be slaughtered, and he doesn't even care or flinch. He's like, oh, you're just going to go eat after watching this gore and disgust? It's possible that's what's going on. Another possibility is that he legitimately is concerned for Ahab. Like, hey, go up and eat. It's been a long day. You lost. Go up. Get your strength back because you're going to have to go back to Jezreel. You're going to have to tell Jezebel about what happened, and you're going to need your strength because rain's coming. I think that the third option is, is the best. It's, you can kind of wrestle with the text yourself. But I think what's actually going on is I think Elijah's saying, go eat because you don't have to worry about water. You don't have to worry about where your food comes from. God is our provider. Go up and eat. It hasn't rained in three years. There's been a drought, a famine for three years. Go, go, go up to the top and eat, Ahab. Either way, he does it. He, he's humiliated. So Ahab went up back to the mountaintop. Probably takes him an hour, two hours to march to the top. He goes up to eat and to drink. So he actually believes it's going to rain. Now, one more thing I'll point out is it says, I hear a sound of rushing rain we're going to find out here in a minute that he didn't physically hear a sound of rushing rain. There was no sound of rain. There was no rain in sight, actually. And so this is a prophetic statement. It's going to rain real hard. So 1 Kings 18, verse 42 says, Elijah went up also from the brook back to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Is he dizzy? Like, why? Why does he do this? Anybody have any idea why, why Elijah would do this? Like, he just gets down on the ground, puts his face between his knees. One, we know he's exhausted. This is an exhausting thing. He's exhausted. But it is abundantly clear, though the text doesn't say, he is in this intense moment of prayer. He is going to the ground on top of the mountain while Ahab is eating. He's got his face between his knees, and he is going to pray his guts out. 
He just did all this. God just answered this shock and awe request. Bring the fire down. Consume the offering. The whole nation just repented. Uh, the king follows his orders. I think Elijah thinks the king has changed, by the way. And so what essentially what Elijah's doing, he's down on the ground, and he's thinking, God better answer me now. Because God put me up to this. And it seriously better rain. It better rain. Because if it doesn't rain, I'm out. I'm done. I'm humiliated. You sense here that Elijah is actually doubting God. Has God ever done something magnificent in your life, like saved you from your sins? Spared the life of your child? Uh, Performed a miracle in front of your eyes, and then like two seconds later you started doubting? It's kind of the story of humanity. I, I know I've been there. And Elijah is utterly doubting God at this moment. Wait till next week and see his doubt uh, at, at the hands of God. Elijah really is a guy who struggles. So in verse 43, Elijah says to his servant, this is the first time we're introduced to his, this assistant. We haven't heard about this guy all along, but here he is now. He might have just hired him and say, oh, you think God is God now. Okay, come help me out. He says, go up and look toward the sea. So he's on the top of the mountain. You can see the Mediterranean five miles out on the horizon. And he says, while I pray, I want you to go and watch. Go toward the sea. And you have to ask yourself, why doesn't Elijah just go up to the very top? And why doesn't he watch while he prays? But have you ever been afraid for what you pray for, that it won't happen? And you kind of doubt God, and so you don't even look. I'll give you an example. Like, there's been times where I've prayed for people to be healed, and I know that God has wanted me to ask them, are you better? Is the pain gone? Is, the, is God bringing you peace and joy? But I don't want them to not be healed or to not have peace or to not be in joy. And so I'm like, peace out. See you later. And like a month later, I'll be like, hey, how you doing? Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that God won't show up. And so sometimes I don't want to see the answer to my prayer because I'm afraid that I'm not good enough to be praying the prayers or I'm not faithful enough to be praying the prayers or I really actually doubt God if I'm being honest. So he has this other guy go and look for him because he can't bear to see his requests not answered. So hey, man, would you just go to the top of the hill? Spare me of this stress. I'm going to be down on the ground with my head between my knees, praying my guts out, but I just can't do it. Would you do it for me, man? So he sends him to look, and in verse 43 it says, so he went up and looked, and he said, I love what he says, there is nothing. Go up and see if there's any rain. He's like, There's nothing. Elijah's like, seriously? The whole licking up the water with fire thing? I I just literally slaughtered all of the king and queen's prophets and nothing? With one prayer, Elijah called down fire in front of at least 100,000 people. But with one prayer in front of one guy, He can't call down a drop of rain. He's like, I'm not coming down this mountain 
until it rains. We're not leaving until it rains, buddy. You get back up there. You look again. I'm going to keep my head between my knees. I just can't look. You look for me. I'm going to be here praying. So Elijah's going to be persistent. He's not going to give up. He's going to be fervent. God promised rain, and he's going to plead with God based off of God's promise. Let it rain. God, I have been hiding for three years, waiting for it to rain. You turned off the faucet with my simple prayer three years ago to turn it off. Please turn it back on again. James 5 has been our verse for this whole series, written about 800 years after Elijah. James, the brother of Jesus, says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. We never saw the prayer of when he asked God to make the rain stop, but here we get to see firsthand the prayer of him asking God to turn the faucet on. It is a fervent prayer, and it says in verse 18, he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. This is where the fervent prayers come in. It doesn't mean Elijah fully trusted God. It doesn't mean Elijah had his act together. It didn't mean that Elijah was emotionally stable because he certainly was not. He was desperate. He wasn't even willing to look. He just kept praying and praying and praying and praying, and it better rain. And so he says to the servant, go up again. Number two, there's nothing. Go up again. Number three, there's nothing. Go up again. Number four. There's nothing. Go up again, number five. There's nothing. Go up again, number six. There's nothing. Go up again. On the seventh time, Elijah prays again with his head between his knees. And at the seventh time, the servant came back down. And here's why this box is here, by the way. Get ready for some magic. Don't peek. Behold, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. Pastor, that's the size of a big watermelon. I know. I know. I get it. It's not to scale. I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. Now, when you read this, you're like, what's, actually, um, what's he actually saying here? Hey, Brian, come tie this to something so I don't have to just hold it. Um, what does he actually see? So what he's doing is he, he looks out over the Mediterranean and he sees the cloud and he does this. It's about that big. It's the, size, it's the size of a man's hand. So if you're looking over the Mediterranean Sea and you see that cloud the size of a man's hand, we can all agree that's a small cloud. You ever been flying before in an airplane? Let's preface that been flying in an airplane before, and you look down, it's like a nice sunny day, but there is like this weird, like one little tiny cloud just chilling out by itself, all, all there, like Mario style. Um, there's, there's a, oh, it's perfect right here from my perspective. Do, do it. See if it is for yours. There's a cloud the size of a man's hand. Okay. Good job, guys. Good job. Good job. <laughs> Lucy Mendoza made this for me. Thank you, Lucy. She's up in Washington. You better be watching this, Lucy. Um, she made this beautiful cloud. And that's it. 
Now, you read this, you, you want to think like, oh, is it the shape of a man's hand? But that is not in Hebrew. If you look up how the word is used, it's not, it looks like a hand. It's more like, that's the size of a hand. So it's just a little tiny cloud. A little tiny cloud. Behold, the seventh time, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. So five miles away, there, just a little tiny cloud, Elijah. One small cloud. I love, it's all Elijah needs. Just that little piece of hope. That little cloud the size of a man's hand. He jumps up and he says, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariots and go down lest the rain stop you. It's like, whoa. Elijah's super bipolar. Like, God, make it rain. Yeah, little cloud. He's like, go tell him. It's going to rain. Yahweh is God and Baal is not. We win. You better get out of here, Ahab, or you're going to get caught in a flash flood. Your chariot's going to get stuck in the mud. He's literally honoring Ahab. He's legitimately concerned. You go run and tell that wife of yours that rain is coming. Go quick. You're going to get stuck. I am stoked. Elijah thinks he's redeemed here, by the way. Because that was actually the content of his prayer. Let people know I'm a good guy. So quick, the whole nation's going to turn back to God. 1 Kings 18.45. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. I said that Mount Carmel is a little bit like um, uh, Cascade Head. And one time I was uh, hiking with some of our church staff on Cascade Head. And this, this whole story kind of played out on top of Cascade Head. I, was, I got a bull and I brought, not, not really. I was up hiking on Cascade Head. It was a clear day and we saw this storm blowing in. We were at the top. We're like, oh, we got plenty of time. And uh, we hiked down and this storm was coming in hard, just black rain coming from the sky. And uh, Ladina was the only one with me uh, at the time. She's watching online from the beautiful town of Myrtle Point, I think, right now. And... Uh, the rain hit hard. Like, we might as well have jumped in the ocean, and we would have been, like, less wet than we would have from this rain. And, and so I've got, like, four young people with me. I'm like, I'll run down and get the van. <laughs> so so I, I took off my shirt and just bailed down the mountain, got the van, drove it back up. But it didn't matter. Like, we were so wet, it just didn't matter. How many of you have been that wet by rain before? It's actually pretty fun if it's not freezing cold. So this is a good memory. So it says... A little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. The faucet turned back on. In response to this normal guy's fervent prayer. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. He heads home at Elijah's urging. But then something very strange happens that I've heard so many Bible teachers make great assumptions about that we have no clue. But for whatever reason, Elijah runs to Jezreel also. 1 Kings 18.46 says, The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He's stoked at this rain. And he gathered up his garments, because people wear robes, so it's like, pull up your robe. 
And he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. A couple of Bible things. We don't know why Elijah does this. Um, he's not running from Ahab. That's how we try to read it. Oh, he's running from Ahab. But if you're running from Ahab, you don't run to the same place you told Ahab to run to. He's running to the same place that Ahab is going to. And we also don't know why he runs ahead, but for some reason he runs ahead of Ahab. And some people are like, oh, God gave him supernatural speed. It doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture, actually. Some people say, well, uh, Elijah beats Ahab to Jezreel. I actually don't think so. If you read chapter 19, it actually implies that Ahab gets there first. But for whatever reason, um, Elijah just belts it down that mountain in front of Ahab's chariot. And you have to ask, what's actually going on? Why is he doing this? Here's why I think he's doing it, but we don't know for sure. Not only do I think that Elijah understands that he's won, I think he, is in, he thinks he's going to get like a victory parade in Jezreel. It rains. I did it. You know, Jezebel, Ahab, they're going to repent. The whole nation's coming back. It's going to be good again. So let's celebrate with me and worship God. I think he's walking into a victory parade, but he's actually about to become public enemy number one. We'll read that next week. He's, he's not running back to what he thinks he's running back to. So this is where the story ends for today. How many of you enjoy a good story sometimes? And doesn't a story better with that, by the way? I couldn't get a bull, um, but I was, I was able to procure a cloud. I'm not here today to tell you a story. What is God doing in your heart as you look at this real historical account of Elijah and Ahab. Here's the point. This is where I'd like to land today. And years ago, as I was thinking about this message series, I knew this is what I wanted to preach on. The part of the story I want us to focus on is that little cloud like a man's hand rising from the sea and the desperate prayers that preceded that cloud. Elijah was desperate for rain. And despite seeing so many things happen at the hands of God, he was struggling with this one thing, rain. He was struggling with the one thing he was asking for. And he asked 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 and and it did not come in his timing. I hate it when I pray and it doesn't come in my timing. Even when it did come, it didn't result the way that Elijah thought. We'll learn about that last week. This story actually doesn't end well. Each time that Elijah's prayer was not answered, he prayed again. And he wasn't praying for something selfish. He wasn't like, you know, oh God, give me a new house, a new boat, a new car, a new bull. He just was praying the very will of God. God, you said there was going to be rain, and so I'm going to pray what you told me to pray for, and you better be true to your word. But now he's doubting. And I think he's doubting himself. Did I really hear from God? Was this all just coincidence? Was was it just lightning at the right time? I just happened to be at that place at that time. It's all just coincidence because it's not raining. 
Am I really supposed to do this? Am I even capable of doing something like this? And so after six prayers with nothing, he prayed a seventh desperate prayer. A prayer that he couldn't even bring himself to look for the answer himself. But his servant was there. And the servant looked for him. And upon the seventh prayer, the servant saw a tiny little cloud. Not a hurricane. Not an afternoon thunderstorm. Not even a shower. That servant, he just saw a little tiny cloud, one measly cloud, the size of a hand. And that's all Elijah needed, a tiny sign of God's faithfulness, a tiny sign that God is faithful to his people, a tiny sign of relief to the end of a three-year drought. And that tiny little sign built up Elijah's confidence It led him to this confident run, a rush to tell Ahab that the rain was coming. You see, sometimes it takes somebody else to have faith for what you do not. Sometimes it takes someone else to have faith and see what you can't see. Sometimes it takes other people to show you where you're at that you're actually further along than you think. Sometimes it takes other people to show you that the thoughts that you have of being a failure, the thoughts you have of not being good enough, the thoughts you have of hopelessness aren't reality. The reality is that hope is right in front of you. In the natural, it's just a small cloud. But in the spirit, in faith, it is a life-giving storm. When you're stuck in a drought, sometimes it takes others to show you the rain is coming. Even if what they see is only the size of a hand. Could you do what you can to get into an attitude of prayer with no distractions? If you can close your eyes or bow your head or just... Really focus in on these next five minutes as we're going to get ready to sing and celebrate through baptism. I believe God wants to use this message to give some of you some radical supernatural hope. There's someone here today who is desperate for rain in your life. And the thing about these kind of analogies is you don't have to explain them. You know what I'm talking about. There's someone here who is desperate for rain in your life. And you're struggling while you're praying for it. Because the rain has not come in your timing. But each time your prayer doesn't get answered, here's what I'd like you to do. Keep praying. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Keep pleading. How many times? Six times? Seven times? Seven times, 70 times if you have to. Don't give up. You're not praying for something selfish. You're praying for God's will. You're praying for what God wants for you. And you may be doubting God like Elijah was. You might be doubting yourself at this point. Did I really hear from God that God wanted me to 
did God really call me to this? Here I am in my third year in school. God called me to this profession, and I'm not doing so hot. God called me to be a missionary here, and I'm not there yet. Like, when are you going to show up, God? Did I really hear from you? But don't stop praying. When you don't have the faith or the confidence to look, surround yourself with people who will. Surround yourself with people that can see the tiny little cloud when you can't. You might not see the monsoon that you've been praying for. But I see a little cloud. And there's brothers and sisters in Christ who who see little clouds in your life. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Your rain is coming. I see a cloud. It's small, yeah. But I can see it. God is bringing rain into your life. And I know that this cloud is small, and it's not all that you want. Sure, it could be a lot bigger. But don't despise the day of small beginnings. I don't know if you've noticed, but God is a God who loves to use small beginnings to bring about big things. Let that little cloud build your faith into confident hope. Get back out and run with confidence to go tell your Ahab. Go tell others. Run with confidence the journey God has set you on. And as Philippians says, as Paul writes 800 years later from this story, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Yeah, the cloud looks small, but God's doing something with it. Are you stuck in a drought? I see a cloud. It's small, but it will grow. When you're tempted to give up, I'll keep watching for you. Surround yourself with people who can watch for you. I'd asked you before if you could eliminate distraction. Now take that to another level. If you could actually bow your heads, close your eyes, so you're not distracted by others around you. The story is fun. The story of Baal and God and Elijah and the prophets, but the Bible is not a storybook. It is a living document breathed by the Spirit of God. Living, active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It's able to pierce through your heart and soul and desires. When God's word goes out, it says of itself, it can't return void. It, It does something. And so This isn't a storybook. This is your life and your relationship with God. If some of you would say, Pastor, I've been praying for rain, and I thought God told me it was going to rain, but I've been praying for years, and I haven't seen it yet. With no one looking around, would you raise your hand and say, that's me. I've been praying for a long time, and I haven't seen it yet. In faith, raise your hands. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen what I've been praying for. Years, I've been praying for it. I've been praying for my son, my daughter, my grandkids for 10, 20, 15 years to put their trust in Jesus. It's not happening. 
Let me walk beside you and say, hey, I see a cloud. Don't give up hope. That cloud's on the horizon. It's small, I know. But hold on to that small glimpse of hope and just keep pressing in. How many of you are people that see clouds for others? Man, there are people right now that have their heads between their knees pleading with God for rain, and they need men and women like you to come alongside them and say, hey, I I see a cloud. Don't give up. There's hope. Hey, I know your marriage looks like it's falling apart right now, but I've seen other people come out of this before. I know you're worried about your kids and this the situation that they're in and with your family, but I, I've seen I've seen this, I've seen this pull out before. I know it looks like uh, the 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 other parent in, in your relationship that you're never gonna get along with with mom of your kids or dad of your kids and but, but I, I, I can see a little cloud because I've seen a whole lot of moms and dads at graduations and weddings standing side by side and cheering their kids on that actually can get along. Don't give up. I see a cloud. See a cloud. The vision God has put on your heart that takes a step of faith to, to jump and leap out. And I, I see a cloud. It's, you're going to be all right. And it's better to take leaps of faith than it is to stay where you're at. Take it. Jump. Jump on up. I see a cloud. God, each person here who's discouraged or disappointed in not seeing things come to pass. God, in faith today, I declare, I I see little clouds of, of hope springing out of the sea, ready to bring rain. And God, whether that rain comes tomorrow, in decades, or even at your return, so be it, God. Send the rain. We'll wait, we'll ask, we'll trust, and we'll hold on to hope. God, put people in each person's life hearing this message that can see those little glimpses of hope on the horizon for their family, their friends, their brothers, their sisters. And God, build us up to be people of hope, people of faith who can see in the Spirit big, giant rainstorms when all they can see is a little cloud. In Jesus' name.